We do invite any children here, kindergarten to second grade, to be dismissed to Children's Church if they wish, which they can find through the door on your left over by the piano. And while our children are making their way to Children's Church, I would invite you to open up a Bible to Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. If you're using a pew Bible, you can locate that on page 1027. 1027. So we look at Luke chapter 9, and we're going to study 51 through the end of the chapter. And let's begin just by reading this text. Let me read it for you. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead. But you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Maybe you've heard the uh, figure of speech crossing the Rubicon, as in, well, that guy's really crossed the Rubicon now. It's a figure of speech that indicates somebody making an irrevocable decision, uh, going past the point of no return. They've made a decision, they're going forward, and there's no turning back. Uh, the phrase comes from history, um, the Rubicon River, it's actually more like a stream in northern Italy, back in the Roman times, separated the province of Italy in the south from the province of Gaul in the north. And it was Roman law that uh, a Roman general was forbidden from leading a standing army across the Rubicon south from Gaul into Italy, because in doing so, it would be considered an act of war against the Roman Senate. Uh, So in 49 B.C., there was Julius Caesar, a rising star uh, in the leadership of Rome. He was a very famous, uh, uh, successful general. And he stood on the edge of the Rubicon on the north side with four Roman legions at his command, debating whether or not to go into Italy and thus declare war, in a sense, on the Senate, with whom he'd been increasingly at bad terms. And so as the story goes, Julius Caesar waited and he debated and he thought about it. And finally, after much thinking, he got on his horse and he 
made that simple little ride across that little stream. He crossed the Rubicon. And history uh, books tell us that he supposedly said, the die is cast. Because at this point, he is across and it is now fully committed to war with the Senate in Rome. <clears throat> and that's the phrase, someone has crossed the Rubicon. I actually saw a video this week of someone crossing the Rubicon. It was uh, our youth pastor, Rich Chamberlain. Some of you know that uh, he had a birthday this week. He turned 50. So, uh, yeah, I'm a 50-year-old youth pastor. It's not bad, you know? I mean, you should see when those kids play kickball, you should see what he can do with his walker. I mean, it's amazing, <laughs> really, to see the, the skill. Um, but uh, Rich, you know, to celebrate his 50th birthday, he did what most of you probably have done on your 50th birthdays who've had one. Uh, he went skydiving for the first time. That was how he, you know, in his adrenaline sort of addiction, that he uh, decided to celebrate his birthday. So he went up on this thing, you know, a tandem jump with an instructor. And it was cool because uh, I guess the package deal he paid for to do this, there was a guy with a helmet and a camera on it who stood outside the plane and filmed the whole thing, you know, jumped with Rich. So they fil- So he has it all on film. You should see it. It's really cool. We were watching it in our staff meeting this week. It's about five minutes long. And, uh, you know, it's just amazing. And there's that moment, though where Rich is on the edge of the plane at the door and the wind is going by and the instructor's behind him, strapped onto him, and he jumps. And at that point, I think it's safe to say you've crossed the Rubicon. (laughs) It's very difficult to get back into the plane after you've made that step. And so he flies out of the plane. And and it's a real step of faith because I guess when you do a tandem jump, you can't reach the ripcord. The instructor has to pull it. So you're really trusting that the instructor doesn't black out or, you know, something. I mean, you, you have to hope that he knows when and how to pull that thing. <clears throat> so I tell those stories because I think as, as I was studying this text, I was struck by the resolute nature of Christ. There's a sense in which Christ in this story is crossing the Rubicon. He's making an irrevocable decision. There's no looking back uh, from what he's about to do, except instead of going south into Rome, he's going south into Jerusalem. In fact, if you look at, look at verse 51, at, that t- at the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now, this is a very important verse in the Gospel of Luke. In fact, if you have a Bible, you may just want to mark it. It's a significant turning point in Luke. Uh, it, it begins a major section, the largest section of the Gospel of Luke. If I could just give you the quick outline of Luke, you know, sort of the 50,000, 30,000 foot view of Luke. You have chapters 1 and 2, the infancy and birth narratives of Jesus. And then you have chapter 3 through chapter 4, verse 13. And this is like, fast forward about 30 years. And now you have the story of Jesus preparing for public ministry. So infancy and birth, preparation for public ministry. Then chapter 4, verse 14 is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And from there until chapter 9, verse 50, uh, Jesus stays in the northern part of Israel. And it's his ministry in Galilee. And that's where we see him doing a lot of miracles. He heals the sick, casts out demons, raises the dead. He teaches some. He's gathering his disciples. And that goes on until chapter 9, verse 50. And then at chapter 9, verse 51, the next section begins, and Jesus begins that long journey down to Jerusalem. Not necessarily geographically far, but far in the sense that that is the purpose for which he came. It's the momentous nature of of his whole coming to earth, he begins to head south toward Jerusalem to fulfill his destiny. So chapter 9, verse 51 is not just another verse. It is a major hinge, a massive transition in the Gospel of Luke. 
And just as Caesar walks across that little um, stream, so Jesus, in this little verse, he turns, and now it is time to go to Jerusalem. Now, why is Jerusalem significant? Well, uh, that's where he's going to go to the cross, of course. That's where Jesus is going to be rejected, suffer, be crucified, die, buried, on the third day rise, and then ascend back to heaven. In fact, he's already begin, uh, begun priming the pump with the disciples, letting them know that this is coming, even though they really don't get it. But if you look back at chapter 9, verse 22, chapter 9, verse 22, to remember we studied this around Easter, it says, he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests who are in Jerusalem and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So that's why Jerusalem he is coming to the whole culmination of why he came was to go to suffer for our sins and die and be raised. And I think that's the point of the little story about the uh, unfriendly Samaritans. If you look at verse 52, uh, after our, our verse here, it says, He sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. Now, you probably maybe know just from other sermons you've heard or Bible studies you've read that the Samaritans and the Jews were very much at odds at this time. Uh, there were racial tensions between them. The Jews considered the Samaritans to be half-breeds, half-Gentile, half-Jewish. And so they looked down on them for that reason. There were religious differences between them. Uh, the Samaritans believed that the right place to worship God was this mountain in Samaria called Mount Gerizim. And the Jews said, no, the right place to worship God is Jerusalem. And so, you know, there's racial tensions, religious tensions. Anytime you mix racism and religion together into tensions between people, you, it's a very intense, entrenched kind of uh, division. And so there's these hostilities. Sometimes they er erupted into open violence. Down through the years, different events would happen and Samaritans would kill Jews or Jews would kill Samaritans. So when a, a Jewish person in Galilee was taking a journey down to Jerusalem with Samaria between the two, often what would happen is that when they got to the edge of Samaria, they would go uh, to the east, cross the Jordan River, go down the Jordan River outside of Israel, and then cross back over once they got past Samaria, because they just wanted to stay away from it. But not Jesus. He goes through Samaria, looking for a place to stay, sending out messengers. A village says, no, we don't want you. Why? He's heading to Jerusalem. They don't want to give hospitality to a Jew going to worship in the wrong place. That's the idea. I love verse 54. This is my favorite part. <laughs> when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? You know, they shouldn't treat you like this, Jesus. So if you want, we'll go, uh, you know, we'll nuke them for you. Are you good? We'll take care of these bums. I mean, you know, don't, don't worry. You don't have to bother. I guess these are the kneecap guys for Jesus. These are his his hitmen or his bodyguards or something, but they just want to go in there and flame people. And, uh, you know, good old ready, fire, aim James and hit him with the love of Jesus, John. They, they want to go in and flatten these Samaritans. And, you know, we can relate. I know there's some James and Johnses in our church. There's some of us who just, that's our personality. Someone starts resisting or doing unjust things and our first response is, wham! We want to fight back and push back and give it to them and Hit him hard. But look what Jesus does. Verse 55. Jesus turned and rebuked them. He rebuked the Samaritans? No. He rebuked James and John. 
and they went to another village. Why did he rebuke them? Because I think the rejection in Samaria is again a foreshadowing of the rejection that's awaiting in Jerusalem. The, the Samaritan little instance helps us understand what Jerusalem's all about. It's a little picture, it's a foretaste of what's going to happen when Jesus gets to his destination. And somehow the disciples continue to miss this. Jesus keeps telling them, this is why I'm going to Jerusalem, and they don't quite, it doesn't make sense to them. But see, Jesus didn't come to conquer Jerusalem, which is what maybe the disciples wanted. He came to allow himself to be conquered by Jerusalem. Jesus did not come to drive the Romans out of Jerusalem. He came to allow the Romans to drive spikes through his limbs and to put a spear into his side. So they don't get it. And he's trying to tell them, this is why I'm going to Jerusalem. Christ is going to suffer and to die for our sins there. And so I think I'm struck by the intentionality of it as well, that this is supposed to happen. This is why he came. It's not like Jesus had this great public ministry going and was building up a good following and then he ticked off the wrong people and wound up on the cross. That's not how it worked. No, this was not an interruption in his ministry. This was the very nub of his ministry. This is precisely why he has come. In fact, look back at verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven. There's a set time. Jesus knew it was coming. So kind of like a bird just knows somehow by God's amazing design of animals. They know when it's time to fly south for the winter. And sometime a year the birds just start flocking together and they just know it's time to go. And somehow Jesus, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and in obedience to Father, to the Father He knows. The time has come. And so in this one verse He turns and He begins that inevitable, unstoppable walk to the cross. And look how He does it. This is my favorite word in this whole thing. Verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus, this is my favorite word, resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He's purposefully, intentionally, it's this kind of unflinching commitment to go. He's not like, oh, I don't, Father, do I have to? Okay, I'll go. Well, I don't want to go. Well, fine. He's not being dragged, kicking and streaming to do the Father's will. He's resolutely setting out. He knows this is why He was born. This is why He left heaven and came to earth and took on human flesh was for this mission. So He resolutely sets out. Uh, the word in Greek is more interesting. It's actually two words in Greek. It's, uh, it's very vivid. It's actually Hebraism, just kind of in Greek. It's He fixed his face. That's what it says in Greek. He fixed his face to go to Jerusalem. Isn't that more vivid? I like that. You know, it's, It made me think of an NFL defensive lineman. That's what it made me think of. Imagine a big 350-pound lineman getting on the line and taking his stance and he's looking up under his helmet and you know, he's fixing his face. He's going one direction. Forward. He is going to get the quarterback. And, and you can see the determination and you know, when that ball is snapped, it's like a locomotive shot out of a cannon. He's just coming at you and pushing and shoving, going forward, forward, forward. It's that fixing of the face, or I thought of maybe an Olympic sprinter. Imagine a woman taking her, her uh, marks in the blocks. She gets her feet fixed there. She puts her fingers right on the line. And uh, I can't get down like that because I'd hurt myself. But, you know, she's uh, getting herself ready. And, and she starts shutting out the world. She shuts out the crowd. She shuts out the other racers. All she is listening for is the gun. And she has her face fixed 
on the finish line, 100 yards away. And, and in that moment, her whole world is very small. It's very narrow. It's a tunnel. And she is a bullet that will be shot straight toward the finish line. It's that kind of determination that's being communicated here. The unflinching, unswerving, uh, unafraid, uncompromising, unshakable determination of Jesus to do the will of the Father at all costs. And I think that is what we should do. We should praise God from this. I, I think we have to take a moment and just uh, savor the glory of Jesus and treasure the beauty of Christ. Look at, the, look at Jesus. Look who He is. He is unswervingly committed to upholding the glory of the Father and doing the will of the Father. And isn't that so radically different from every other experience of human life that we've ever had? Because all around us and inside of us, we see people turning away from the way of God. I look in the mirror, I look at my life, and I see, I'm surprised whenever I do follow God, actually. I see His grace at work. It's surprising. Uh, I I look at the world around me, political leaders that we hope are going to come through for us, or uh, business leaders, and they, they fail, they have failings, and they don't live for God. Our culture is oriented away from God. It's oriented toward the self. Even when you look in the Bible, look at the great heroes of the Bible, the people who are the saints that we do look up to and we should look up to, and even they fail. You know, Abraham, the great man of faith from the Old Testament, a wonderful saint that we should seek to emulate. The Apostle Paul holds him up as an example of faith, and yet he goes down to Egypt and he loses faith. And he says, oh dear, Pharaoh is going to fall in love with my wife, he's going to try to kill me, Sorry, right, we're going to lie. You say you're my sister. And he falls. He doesn't trust God. Or you get Moses, the great man who led the Israelites out of Egypt. But you know, you look at him in front of the burning bush when God was calling him, and he's this kind of blithering weenie. You know, oh, do I have to go? I don't know how to talk. Oh, you know, oh they're not going to believe me. Are you sure you don't want to send someone else? It's like, this is the guy. This is what you came up with, God. But this is who he uses. Or even in the desert, Moses is supposed to speak. And water is going to come out of the rock, but Moses is angry with God. And so rather than trusting God, he shows his disobedience by taking that staff and he strikes the rock twice. And God says, because you did that, you will not enter the promised land. And so Moses fails. And then there's King David. I mean, he kills Goliath. He composes the Psalms. He's the man after God's own heart. He's the guy who has an affair and kills the lady's husband to cover it up. I mean, wow. And all these people fail, fail, fail. And so the Bible cries out for someone who will do the will of the Father perfectly, who will keep the law of God. And so we see Jesus is finally that one whom we can idolize because he is the image of the invisible God. That one who we can look to as that hero who never fails, who doesn't have an Achilles heel. He is the one. Just look at his obedience to the Father. Theologians often talk about Jesus' obedience in two ways. They talk about his active obedience and his passive obedience. Uh, and by active obedience, what theologians mean is that Jesus actively kept all of God's laws. He did all the things that God commands us to do in the Scriptures, unlike us. He's kept all the Ten Commandments and every other law that God commanded. He's perfectly loved God with his whole heart, and he's perfectly loved his neighbor as himself. But then there's also his passive obedience. And what theologians mean by that is that Jesus also accepted the punishments the law requires for disobedience. So, he kept the law in my place, 
And he took the punishment for violations of the law in my place. He is both my righteousness and my sacrifice for forgiveness. His obedience is perfect. It's, it's breathtaking. And, and so when Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem, we see the glory of God shining in his face in his total obedience to the Father, his total harmony between Father and Son through the Holy Spirit, the whole Trinity working together, one God and three persons. It's an incredible mystery. But here he goes to the cross. It made me think of a text in Isaiah chapter 50. Uh, I just want you to read this text with me because it's, it's so striking in relationship to this verse. So put a bookmark here. We're going to come back. Go to Isaiah chapter 50, verse 5. If you're using a pew Bible... That's on page 728. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 5, page 728. This is, I, uh, I believe this is um, words spoken by most likely Isaiah, but uh, prefiguring Christ. And so as you hear these words, think of these words in the heart of Christ as he goes resolutely to obey the Father, even going to the cross. Look at verse 5. The Sovereign Lord has opened my ears, and I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. I will, I will do what God says. Verse 6. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the Sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring any charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the Sovereign Lord who helps me. Who is He that will condemn me? Sounds like Romans chapter 8, doesn't it? Who is He that will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. I I just love that verse. Such a picture of Christ's boldness and His trust of the Father, even willing to undergo shame and suffering, not having to call down fire from heaven to vindicate Himself, because He trusts that the Father will vindicate Him. And so in his trust of the Father's love for him, in his trust of God's goodness, he glorifies the Father even at the cost of his own life. And so I think that the first application of this text is that we have to treasure Christ. We need to cultivate in ourselves as believers uh, an appetite for the glory of Jesus. We need to pause and think about what kind of a Savior we worship. And you know, this verse should just lead us to worship Jesus. We should stop right here and sing about four more hymns glorifying Christ and His obedience to the Father. But there's another application, and it's the one that comes out in verses 57 to 62. And the other application is that if Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem to do the will of the Father, then if we are going to be His followers we must follow with the same resolute Rubicon crossing, jumping out of the airplane, total commitment that Christ exhibited. And I think that's what verses 57 to 62 are all about. There are three um, conversations, three little vignettes as Jesus is walking. And in each of them, the point is the same. To follow Jesus takes total commitment, just as Christ totally committed himself and I think that's what each of these conversations illustrate in their own way. So let's just look at them really quickly in order. The first conversation is verses 57 to 58. 
And here we see that we need total commitment to Christ because following Christ often involves deprivation. Uh, Verse 57, As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. It was great. I mean, imagine if someone stood up and said, "I, I will follow Jesus today. I mean, we'd all clap. We'd be like, hooray. Not Jesus. He warns the man. Jesus replied, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Are you sure you want to follow me? I'm glad you do, but are you sure? Realize what you're getting yourself into. Jesus has been homeless ever since he left heaven. He lives as a stranger on this earth. Heck, even the Samaritans won't let him in. You know, even the Samaritans won't let you in. You don't got much going for you. He's got no place to stay. Even animals have a hole in the ground or a nest. Jesus has no place to lay his head. And so he's speaking of the fact that he came to suffer and to be deprived. And I think we have to understand that. You know, we as Americans are so comfortable. We're so comfortable. I think I'm far more comfortable than I even realize how comfortable I really am. Whereas a friend of mine likes to say, we are addicted to comfort. I think he's right. I think I am addicted to comfort even more than I want to admit. I mean, the foods that I have at my disposal, they go down to Whole Foods. It's amazing the foods we have to eat here. We can eat whatever we want. We have nice houses. We have air conditioning in our cars. We have technology that the world has never seen. Um, We have uh, homes. and It's just amazing what we have at our disposal. So much comfort, so much entertainment, so much pleasure right before us. Uh, And so it's easy to become addicted to that. And I think sometimes that finds its way into the evangelical church. And the message that we hear is follow Jesus because he'll make your life more comfortable and fulfilling. In fact, I would say probably that's one of the major gods in the American pantheon that we all worship is personal fulfillment and development. It's all about me growing and learning more about myself and becoming you know, not it's all about me depriving myself and crucifying myself. It's all about developing myself and becoming more and learning more. And uh, it just flies contrary to what Christ is saying here. I mean, if, do this. Next time you see a Christian book catalog, if you ever get those things, they list all the different Christian books you can buy. Look on the bestseller page and just look at the titles. It's all about, you know, what would Jesus eat? And, you know, what, what kind of food, diet would help? You know, there's Christian diet books that tell you how to eat nutritionally so that you can be healthy. I mean, that's good. You should, be, you should eat nutritionally. But it's like that's not the essence of Christianity is becoming more nutritionally sound or, or you know, it's having your dreams fulfilled in Christ or having, you know, the most wonderful life possible. And you can have it now. You know, all these books are just about personal fulfillment and aggrandizement. I mean, where are the books that are about... Uh, you know, just focusing on the glory of Christ? Or where are the books about deprive thyself? You, know, you don't find those books. You know, self-crucifixion, the Jesus way. You know, I mean, those are the books that we don't find. And, and so I think that's just kind of seeped into our mentality and my mentality. And I hear Jesus speaking something so different. He's saying, if you follow me, you're going to become an alien in this world. The values that I have are so contrary to the values of the world, people in your workplace are going to think, that you have lost it. The morals that I'm going to ask you to follow are so different from what the kids in your biology class do that they're going to think you are out to lunch. The, the values and the beliefs and the, the way you're going to live your life are going to make people think that you're from a different planet. But hey, 
if we're going to follow Christ, we have to be willing to be spiritually homeless in a sense, without a sense of place, belonging to another place, a kingdom of righteousness. Second conversation. This one emphasizes the radical commitment that's involved by showing that Christ must be our highest priority, even, the most, even above the most sacred commitments in life. Verses 59 and 60. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. You know, that, I'd say of these three, com- three comments, that one is probably the most radical to me. That's the one that I just find so jarring to my own soul, uh, to tell somebody, let the dead go bury their own dead. But it's not that Jesus wasn't compassionate or kind. It's illustrating the priority that Christ must take in our lives. Because what's the highest priority? I can't think of any higher social obligation for a Jewish person, perhaps, than to bury one's father. The burial was very important in those days. It wasn't done by professionals. I mean, people took care of their own dead. They wrapped the dead. They took care of the body. It was a sacred uh, a commitment and obligation to one's family and especially to a father who was the head of the household in the Jewish family. So this was a very sacred obligation. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. Following him and proclaiming his kingdom is even more important. I mean, you know, could you imagine, God forbid, but could you imagine if last night I had lost a family member and uh, Pastor Seth came into the pulpit this morning he said, you know, I'm really sorry we got to pray for Jeremy. He lost someone last night, and so he's not here. He's with his family. And you wouldn't be upset. You'd say, well, yeah, that's where Jeremy should be. He should be with his family. And maybe you'd say, well, let's, you know, we need to vote to give him three weeks vacation because you know, he probably needs to recover. And he's always wanted a Harley, so let's give him a Harley. And you would vote very sympathetically to sort of shower me with gifts to help me through grief. Um, and, you know, as you should. So that, that's, um, <laughs> that's what I can imagine happening. But that's not what Christ says. I, you know, it's more like Jesus. No, 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 Jeremy. Could you imagine Jesus saying to me, let the dead bury their own dead. You need to go preach the kingdom of God. That's far more important than this death in your family. <laughs> you know? and, and I was going to sit up here and try to explain this and soften it, but I don't want to. I just want to leave it out there. Just leave it out there. Put it out there. Because so I think that's the point of this statement is to jar us, to help us to see how important the kingdom of God is, to preach God's kingdom in our lives, no matter what you do for a living, to speak the name of Christ, the most important thing. And that takes Rubicon crossing, jumping out of the plane, total commitment to live that way. And then the final one. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. So here's a guy who wanted to go back and forward at the same time doesn't work. You can't go back and follow. He just he'd rip you in half. It's impossible to go two directions at once. Jesus says, you know what that's like? That's like a guy who's uh, plowing his field. And imagine a guy plowing his field and doing it this way the whole time. You know, what would happen? He wouldn't plow a straight line. He'd hit rocks. It'd be a mess. He couldn't do it that way. Uh, I don't know if you've ever um, ridden in a car with somebody who's driving and when they talk to you while they're driving, they insist on looking at you. <laughs> I mean, I just think license revoked right there. It's like, get off the road. People like that just terrify me. They're looking at you. They're driving with their knees so they can talk. <sighs> All right, sometimes I'm driving in the, the, um, my really cool minivan with my kids, and I'll be driving. 
and the kids in the back will be playing with toys or reading a book, and they'll yell, Daddy, Daddy, look at this picture in the book. I'm like, I can't look at the picture. I'm driving. Honey, we're driving in Massachusetts. I have to really be careful. I have to keep my eyes on the road. I have to look where I'm going. I can't be looking back. And uh, yet I think some of us are, are rendered ineffective in our Christian lives because we're trying to follow Jesus, but we're trying to do this too. That's what Jesus says. You're unfit for service. In other words, useless. You're a bad farmer. You won't plow straight rows. And, and some of us look at our lives and we wonder, you know, I'm a Christian, but I just don't feel like I'm doing anything for God. There's not enough fruit. And maybe it's because we have other commitments in our lives that are making us look backwards and forwards at the same time. We haven't learned that we need to totally cross the Rubicon and jump out of the plane and go for it with Christ completely. You remember what happened to Lot's wife when she looked back? I think about in the days of Elijah. Uh, the people of Israel worshipped the Lord God, but they also worshipped Baal, the Canaanite fertility rain god. And Elijah got them all together. He said, people, people, how long are you going to hop back and forth? That's a Hebrew. Hop back and forth between two opinions. If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal is God, follow Him. But make up your mind. Stop trying to have it both ways. Worship one God and serve Him only. <clears throat> and so I think Christ is, uh, this is a challenge for us who are followers of Christ to continually examine our lives to see if there are things that are distracting us, distracting me from a wholehearted following of Jesus. Things that are hindering my uh, commitment to Christ. Um, you know, maybe, maybe it's like partying Saturday and then church on Sunday. This does not work, people. You can't hit the clubs hard Saturday and then the pews hard Sunday. You have to decide which is it going to be. Maybe there's some addictive vice that is in our lives and nobody knows about. We need to talk to someone who we love and trust to start dealing with. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe it's something that's not in and of itself evil or sinful. It's just a thing in the world. But it's taking on a kind of idolatrous proportion in our lives. Often that's what it is. It's things that are good, but, but you know, they've just taken on such a, a, a dominance in our life that they control everything in our families and our time and our money. It can be anything, you know, fishing. It can be sports. It can be fitness, being in shape and being fit. That can become an addiction and a, an idol, idol in our lives. Our work, of course, and we all have to earn a living. We all have to work hard. That's just part of the way God's created things. And we can glorify God in our work, but sometimes we work more than we really need to work because that's become... Uh, an idol, and, and that's leading us away from Christ instead of being an avenue through which we can serve Christ. Uh, relationships. You know, maybe you're with somebody and you know, dating somebody and you know it's not the right thing. Or maybe you have a best friend in school and they're pulling you away from Christ instead of helping you go toward Christ the other way. Um, maybe it's that we like to control our lives. We want our house to look a certain way. We want our children to look a certain way and behave a certain way because we have to have the right kind of life. And whatever it is, I mean, we could just go on and on, couldn't we? So many ways that we get distracted from the kingdom of God. And so, what is it? I mean, let God search your heart. Let the Holy Spirit search your heart. Pray sometime today. Lord, is there something that's got me looking back while I'm trying to go forward? And if it is, help me figure out what that is so I can by your grace, overcome that and seek you.
with all my heart. Or maybe you've never even really given your life to Christ. And you would say, you know, I'm not quite there yet. I've been coming to church here and, you know, I like the sermons and the music is really nice and the people in the nursery are really nice to my kid. And I like this building. It's really pretty. It's nice to sit in this beautiful space. I feel very uplifted. And, you know, great. That's great. But you need to follow Christ. You're on the door of the airplane and you're feeling the wind going by. You're like, ooh, that feels nice. You've got to jump out of the airplane. And, and, you know, religion is not it. It's not just going to church. And maybe you grew up religious, but people, religion will take you to hell just as fast, if not faster, than irreligion. Because religion brings with it self-righteousness. No, religion and church and sacraments and liturgies, those things can't save us. Christ saves us. The only way to be saved is to strap into Jesus on that tandem jump and jump out of the airplane and trust that Jesus is going to pull the chute. That's, that's salvation. Trusting in Christ alone. Those are the key words. Christ alone. Through faith alone in Him. Not by works. You know, so you've got to leave the plane. And by the way, the plane is going to crash and burn. <laughs> In case you didn't know. So it's time to get out of the plane. It's not like it's going to land safely some other way. Christ alone is our hope and salvation. Um, so turn to Him. I'm, maybe you're like a, I don't know, a student or something. And you grew up in a church or whatever, and your parents always drag you here, and you hear the same thing over and over, and you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, 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 I gotta believe in Jesus. But look, God doesn't have grandchildren. God only has children. You can't be saved by the faith of your parents. At some point, you have to decide, will you follow Christ yourself? And you can't just be like, well, I'm in a Christian family, so I'm okay. No, no, no. You've got to turn to Christ yourself and trust in Him. And so, you know, Jesus is here. He's here with us. Wherever Jesus' word is being opened and, and the Spirit is present, Jesus is present through His Holy Spirit. He's walking up and down the aisles. And He says to every single one of us the same thing. Follow me. Follow me. And so we need to follow Him. And I don't know what's holding you back, but you, know, you feel that wind? I mean, imagine jumping out of the plane. It's incredible to have our sins forgiven and to enter into a new life with Christ. Search your hearts. Let me search my heart. Are we really in Jesus? Don't be an almost Christian. An almost Christian is going to the same place as everyone else. You need to be fully in Christ. And so don't let yourself be deluded by thinking, well, I'm a nice person. I'm moral. No, find out. Search your heart. Am I in Christ? And seek it out. Because that's what it takes to follow Him. Crossing the Rubicon, jumping out of the plane, total commitment. I know some of you are in the business world. Some of you have to deal with contracts all the time. You know, contracts, pieces of paper, all this legal ease. And you look at the contract before you sign it, and you have your lawyers look at it, and the lawyers go over it, and they go, well, we want to change this, paragraph 2, page 3, change that, change this. Then they give it to the other lawyers, and the other lawyers go, oh, we're going to change this, okay, we accept that. And it goes back, and it goes forth, and it takes months. And finally, everyone's happy with the contract. Then you have the contract signing and everyone sits down and the lawyers are there watching and you're sitting there and finally you have to take your pen after you're totally sure that all the wording is right and then you sign it and commit to the contract. That's how it works in the world. In the kingdom of God, it works the exact opposite direction. We sit down with Jesus and he passes us a blank piece of paper. He says, sign this. 
what are the terms? Whatever I say. <laughs> uh, what am I committing to? You're committing to me and whatever I say. Uh, are you sh- well, it, it's, so, it's scary. But remember, brothers and sisters, some of the terms of the commitment are Jesus saying, you are forgiven, you have become my child, nothing will separate you from the love of Christ, I will save all those who trust in me and raise them up on the last day. That is the terms of the contract when we trust in Christ. And so sign on the dotted line, jump out of the plane, cross the Rubicon, give yourself wholeheartedly to Christ because he has given himself body and soul on the cross for us. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, I pray that you would not spare us as a church, but that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts, starting with mine, and that you would lovingly and uh, unflinchingly point out those areas in our lives where we need to surrender something to you and commit ourselves more fully to you. Lord, we are aware of how easily we deceive ourselves, and so we need your Spirit to enlighten our minds so that we can repent and trust in you. Lord, I pray for anyone here who's struggling with you, Jesus, and they want to follow you, they hear your voice calling, but they're not sure and they have questions. And Jesus, I pray that you would just show them your glory right now, that they would see your beauty, Jesus, that they would feel the freedom of living forgiven in you, that they would, by your grace, empowering them, be enabled to make the leap of faith. Because we know that even the leap of faith is a gift from you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would uh, move in our hearts. Lord, let our church not be a hypocritical church. Lord, if we say we're followers, help us to live that way. And we need your grace to be a non-hypocritical church. There's enough hypocrisy in the world. And Lord Jesus, most of all, I pray that you would help us to savor and treasure and delight in your glory, Jesus, as the obedient Son, that we would treasure you above all else, that we would be so smitten with you that we would desire that your resolute commitment to the glory of God would be our resolute commitment to the glory of God. And so, Lord, make us like you by your grace. Amen. We're going to end by singing May the Mind of Christ My Savior number 568 in your hymnal. And it's a prayer of commitment as we commit ourselves to Christ, asking Him that His resolute mind would be ours. Would you stand and let's sing number 568.
Phillips is here. Catherine Corcoran from our prayer team is here. They're going to be in the front after the service. And so just come on up if you like prayer. They'll pray with you about whatever it is going on in your life and stand with you together in prayer. And now let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would send out your people full of joy, full of hope. Help us, Lord, to feel the winds of heaven blowing on our face as we free fall with you, Christ, toward eternal life. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would be uninhibited by worldly uh, temptations and allurements and sin, but that we might be free to follow you with gusto and with the same kind of fixed face glory that you had. And Lord, we pray that you give us hearts of love this week. There are people all around us who are hurting, people who are going through divorces and bereavements and difficulties with their children and difficulties with being single. And Lord, all kinds of problems around us. And Lord, all of them underneath it all have the problem that they need a Savior. And so God, I pray that you'd give us Christ-like compassion and mercy, that we might be emissaries of your love and kindness this week, and that you give us opportunities not only to speak words of encouragement, but Lord, even to speak the gospel. And so God, be with us this week. Help us to be your ambassadors to the South Shore and to Boston. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.